It is a warm Saturday evening in March and Paul and I are sharing an overpriced bottle of red in the window of a warmly lit wine bar. And whilst I barely know him, we are laughing and taking it all in. I don't think he realises properly what sort of a spectacle this is for me. The whole loveliness of it all and for a moment, only a slight moment, I feel like a fraud. Like a flushed teenager in a gingham skirt who has snuck out of home in the middle of the night with nothing but a cheap lipstick in her pocket for emergencies. Home, not as in my mother and father's warm Cranbourne den, but rather the empty hallways of abuse I have since grown out of. The ones I've memorised, all the same. I excuse myself momentarily, splashing cold water onto my face which is red now from the inside with booze. And I look in the mirror. Does this person, whose highlighter has smudged slightly from the upper lip and whose curls are plaited back to show off her face, this person who seems and looks and perhaps even is fine and normal and receptive to new things, to dating, to Paul, is lovely. Does this person look like someone who three months ago stepped onto a plane at Heathrow Airport and ran away from hate? Looking the part post-abuse is like not knowing the answer to a multiple choice question. A is a stereotype, a broken, beaten, gaunt, bedridden, crying mess, and B is a rebellion. Furious, determined, unapologetic, hair short at the back, that fucking bastard, she says. I guess this is C, I think to myself as I lock eyes with my reflection. Neither broken nor furious, just present and hopeful. The next morning I wake from a deep sleep, but I wake in his bedroom instead of my own and it feels lovely, really. It is a slow Sunday and he invites me to meander through town, the two of us in his car listening to the soft purr of weekend radio, on our way to meet friends of his in Brunswick. I don't know much about Paul yet, but what I do know is that he is an academic who cares a lot about animals and has a slight scar between his left eye and his eyebrow, and was once in a Christian rock band, and who, because of this, laughs jovially about past versions of himself. I am scared. Not of him, but of the fact that past Madison's will and do rock up unannounced still. They sit and cry and demand apologies where there aren't any. Which would be fine if I knew that Christian rock band Paul of yesteryear would be muscling his way into current Paul's bedroom to perform an off-key Hillsong cover every so often. But I know he won't. There are no stones left unturned, whereas for me, there are. I think the past is a little bit like a living thing, like a sniffling, crying baby that you need to feed and love and hold until you don't. You're listening to Tender, a podcast about what happens after women leave abusive relationships, and I am your host, Madison Griffiths. In this episode, I get closer and closer to Paul, which means opening up and showing my vulnerability in ways I haven't since leaving my last relationship. Terrified that the past will play havoc with my new life, I do something drastic. 
I start a new share house with somebody I barely know on Perry Street, a long and loud road in Collingwood. This may seem like a strange and potentially irresponsible thing to do, but hear me out. One evening, while perusing on Facebook, I see a status update that reads something along the lines of, anyone want to move to Collingwood area? Hit me up. It's posted by somebody I met once at a party, a sprightly and intelligent person named Bridget, or Didge if you know her well, who made an impression on me almost instantly. The night that we met, I was pissed drunk in a t-shirt covered in screen printed cherries, and I had no worries in the world. What was exciting about the prospect of living with a perfect stranger was the freedom to not let the old and aching Madison into the house. To change the locks, to cover the outside world with windowsill houseplants, to start again. Because if Deej were to see my past self, she wouldn't even recognize her. She hasn't met her before. Starting a new home in a new suburb with new friends felt critical. I'd broken up with him. Now it was time to break up with me. And so it happened. Bridget was keen and we managed to fasten a place in an almost ridiculously short amount of time. All I had was a mattress which I had stuffed hopelessly into the back of my car, but that was fine. I was really, really excited. And so, started my new life. Full of dinner parties and cigarettes on the back porch or with Didge's windows open on any given Sunday morning or walking down to everyday coffee for a bagel and a soy flat white and saying hello to the barista because of course I know him by name and going to the movies on a Monday evening with Paul because those are the nights that it's cheap and ordering hot ramen in and waiting at the door in tracksuit shorts like the desperate school kid until the delivery rider arrives. I can get used to this, I think to myself. One evening, my best friend Lucinda and I are attending an Emerging Riders Festival event at the Wheeler Centre, which we plan to conclude with cheap dumplings, naturally. And so the two of us walk from Little Lonsdale to Chinatown in the company of a woman who also attended the event, a woman who read my article about Theo and complimented me for the way I captured his presence. I'm appreciative, of course, but again, this is my life now, remember? I want to tell her that I'll pass my regards onto the Madison of before, who will relish in feeling heard or feeling seen, but that this Madison is fine. She's over it, in fact, with a new postcode and a new haircut and the new bedtime size that belong to a new lover, the one she's beginning to memorise. It seems silly to dwell in the trauma of it all. And it is then that it happens. He is sitting, about 100 metres away from me, and this is the first time I have seen him in what feels like a lifetime and in some ways is. He may as well be a ghost. And here I am standing near the steps at Melbourne Central, stuck in time as if attending a double wake. One for who he was and one for who I was, and then he laughs at me. He actually laughs at me, and for a moment, I forget my barista's name and the reason I am here tonight in the city like some kind of recovery imposter and my shoes looked so scuffed suddenly and there are many people here passing me, pushing through with places and homes to go to and their keys, they rustle in their pockets and I'm scared to look down. 
as if there on the ground I will find my remains. I am like a busker with a paper cup, but instead I am a woman pretending to be okay with a chalice full of hurt at her feet and a man that taunts her walking distance away. I walk quietly, quickly, hopelessly, but I do, I just walk. Then I call Paul and spatter. This is the person that you're with. I hope he hears between the lines. This fragmented person, fragile and scared and pathetic, and no amount of dinner parties will change that. I didn't realize it at the time, but what I'd actually done was associate myself, as in the person who occasionally felt the hooks of my past sink deep into my present, the person who had despairing mornings occasionally and angry inquiries and deep-seated insecurities with the person Theo described. I thought that the more I acknowledged the abuse rather than just forgetting about it and getting over it, the more I'd prove him right, that I am unlovable and ugly and inherently flawed. So I ran away from it and pretended it never happened and when those feelings of gloom and fury came, as they do, when they flooded back the moment I looked at him dead on in the street, I didn't know what to do, or rather, I didn't even know who I was. But Paul is there when I park out the front of his house that evening, and I finally talk to him, introducing him to a version of myself I have kept hidden, but always in stow. With a quiver in my throat, I tell Paul about my last night with Theo, the way I still begged for him at the airport about the woman from Dubai who sat next to me on the plane and after eight hours told me the hardest part was over before she left. I didn't catch her name. I told him things I found embarrassing and explained to him the multiple choice conundrum of abuse. How woman A is tired and broken, is sapped of energy and beauty and sexuality, is essentially void waiting for the right person to fill that space again, but to do it well this time. That's the only way she'll get better, you see. How woman B is strong, is staunch, is able to sniff out her abuser's angry nonsense at its infancy before it develops into some kind of brat who spray paints dicks on the walls and calls his mum a bitch. I think I am neither A or B, but I also think I am both. There are instances I remember with Theo that I wish I could change, wish I could be larger, more tenacious, a huge and dangerous gust of feminine wind. But there are instances that I am proud of too, instances where I protested well and powerfully. I actually really wanted him to know how hurt I had been. That's Ginny. She started seeing her current boyfriend, Noel, within a year of leaving an abusive partner. Rather than walking on eggshells, she recited her experiences to Noel firsthand, something she refers to as a form of protection. She wanted to feel seen, and for love to grow between them, there needed to be transparency. Um, and it was almost like, for me, I wanted that validation. It was that, that same thing I think you were speaking of, like wanting to be believed. I really needed to be. And it was really important to 
important going forward in a new relationship that my new partner believed what I'd been through. So yeah, these conversations just kind of came about. We'd go on walks and yeah, I remember going on one particularly long walk one summer night and, and sort of being like, all right, I need to tell you what I experienced in my last relationship. I need you to know how that affected me and like, I need you to acknowledge this. Yeah. I think the question I was scared to ask Paul, or rather to ask myself, was what does it mean to be worthy of love? And when I say love, perhaps I mean something different to the love you know. In fact, I hope I do. It took me a long time to realize that Theo could perform his awful rituals because I loved him. Because with love came forgiveness and with forgiveness came permission. He exploited that love, packing it in his wallet like a my key card, carrying it and insisting on using it whenever he needed the formal four letter authorization to call me names to treat me poorly. Being with Paul meant redefining that love, a love that cannot be collected or distributed or used like some kind of flimsy free pass for badness. A love that yearns and roars with laughter. A love that I do not have to earn, that just is, and no amount of sadness or tragedy or past anger will turn it sour. No three stripes and you're out, love. And I went through all the nitty gritty and he was kind and empathetic without, I don't know, assuming that he understood exactly what I had gone through. The next morning I get home and Dig is at the front counter listening to a podcast and emptying some oats from the oats jar into her cereal bowl. She says hello and I ask if she wants me to get the two of us a coffee from our local where Kasun will no doubt be there asking me how I am and meaning it. And when I say me, I mean me as in all of me, not just the fragmented new bits. And two doors down, our neighbours on Blight Street will be starting their days, be it on foot, on the leather seats of their bikes, and I may pick up a mug from the Vinnies on the way back, and Dig and I will laugh and prime ourselves for the day as we sit on the porch. And she isn't a stranger, and neither am I anymore even to myself. I want to thank three incredible donors for helping producing this episode. Episode 5. Ruby Staley, Tabitha Timms and Catherine Shaw. You are all so wonderful and so incredibly generous and I was so overwhelmed to receive your donations. It's an amazing feeling to get that sort of support. I also want to thank my friend Ginny for her openness and her being willing to discuss what it was like for her starting a new relationship on this episode of Tender. And it's not just these four that have made making Tender such a wonderful experience. I want to thank all of you for listening, for sitting with my truth, for reviewing my work, for giving me a chance. Tender feels like its very own thing now and not just something I've cooked up at my desk in the middle of the night while my pets and Paul sleep. If you want to join the Tender ranks and appreciate the amount of effort I put into this audio project, you're more than welcome to send me a donation. If you visit www.tenderpodcast.tumblr.com and press on the expandable button in the top left-hand corner, you'll see a tab that says Donate. I will be 
forever grateful. That money allows me to afford to continue making this. It puts a coffee and a meal on the table and it means quitting my job to pursue more meaningful projects like this one was worth it. Or if you're looking to be a sponsor, feel free to shoot me an email at madisongriffiths at live.com.au and we'll get chatting. I'm your host, Madison Griffiths, and I will see you next time on Tender Podcast. And when I say next time, let's look at what we'll be covering for episode six. Paul and I start settling deep into our new relationship. We're kind of inseparable and it's awesome. But as what naturally happens, we have begun occasionally and very rarely quarreling over silly things. Which is fine, but for me, coming out of abuse means that small arguments about what to eat for dinner feel like dangerous touch-and-go territories, even though I know deep down that everything's okay. Also, I bump into somebody I haven't seen for a long time, Theo's best friend, and I remember, it wasn't just Theo I left, but a lot of other people too.